Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we're going to be in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any other, to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. May God apply the reading of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. Please join me in a prayer for God's word that his Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit might convict us and bring us to the gospel. God, please bless the teaching of your word. Let the focus not be on a fallible, feeble man speaking in front of the congregation, Lord, but instead allow it to be focused and clear on your word. May your glory be seen more clearly. May your Holy Spirit do his work in this church this day. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, you might, if you've noticed the title, those who are Star Wars fans might recognize the words of Admiral Akbar. it's a trap. Uh, 
I was really tempted to go full, it's a satrap, something like that, full dad joke. Um, and uh, we've got three traps we're gonna cover today on the outline in the back, but I've got a fourth for you. We're only gonna cover verse 10. You're gonna get another sermon. I think uh, with the scheduling, it might not be till the new year, but you're gonna get another sermon in Daniel chapter six over these verses. So don't worry, for those that are visiting, come on back and uh, we'll get you uh, through these 14 verses of Daniel six. But until then, we're gonna focus only on Daniel six, verse 10, and then we're gonna take that time to pop us over to where most of our actual text for today uh, will be. But before doing that, I wanna address one element that may be a question in your head or something that I need to make clear so that you know what to expect when you see some names. We've already seen from Daniel, he uses various names um, at times, flip-flopping back and forth, and it's not arbitrary, it's intentional. We've had Belshazzar and Daniel, we've had um, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, so we've had, we've had names used because they're helpful, they're, they're very helpful. And so um, what I think of actually is a story from my childhood, from high school. Before my junior year of high school, I got the opportunity to go with my dad, my brother, and some friends to a basketball camp out in Maryland. It was a big camp, being coached by a Hall of Fame basketball coach, and there's about 500 kids. We get there, I'm excited, I'm about to go into my best year of basketball, I'm, we have a chance, we have a good competitive team, and here I am at a, as a 17-year-old, playing basketball across the country in front of a lot of impressive people. I get the opportunity at the end of the camp to play in an all-star game. So I'm excited, childhood dreams are coming true. That idea of being uh, an NBA player and getting to play in an all-star game, right? I'm, I'm just excited out of my mind. And I'm sitting there on a bench, getting ready. They're, go they're doing a whole thing, like a PA announcer calling out names, um, everybody, you know, from Arizona, six foot one, right? And doing all of this. And so the fact that the coaches have picked me to be an all-star, the fact that I'm sitting here getting ready to get called up, this is great. And even better, the PA announcer is going out of his way to insert a nickname for everybody. So he's giving everyone nicknames, right? So I'm sitting there thinking, ooh, am I gonna get PJ the sharpshooter Smith? Am I gonna get like something like that, something just really cool. And after giving cool names to all these people, and I don't know who this guy is, we're at a camp, he doesn't know who I am, he's just trying to create a fun experience. I get my chance for glory, I'm sitting there ready to go up, and he goes, PJ, the name for an eight-year-old, Smith. <laughs> Socked to the gut, I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? So I go out, I wave to the crowd, they cheer, whatever, but there's definitely chuckles going on, and you know, childhood dream in front of you just pulled down in a moment. Eight-year-old, name for an eight-year-old. So every person who's met me since, I have introduced myself as Peter. Uh, everyone outside of this church calls me Peter at work. Everyone calls me Peter. I work with uh, and have worked with a couple of people here. They know if you want to look me up and chat me, it's Peter. I decided from that point on, I'm a big boy and I'm older than eight, and so I need the name Peter. And so we'll see there's a couple connections here. Sure, there's a name play usage going on, but there's another thing, which is if I really was as good at basketball as I thought I was, and if I was really as confident in myself as I thought I was, I probably would have had more of the attitude and retrospective, that's right, you just got scored on by someone whose name is for an eight-year-old. Like, shame on you, look how good I look, right? It wouldn't have been a good response, still prideful, nonetheless, all of this is prideful, and yet, 
the, in terms of maturity, me caring about my name and what people think of my name uh, should have been different. Now, I'm stuck with Peter at work. Too many people know me as Peter. I'm not gonna start introducing PJ. But at church, no luck. I have people who have been here since I was born. I've had people who have spanked me. I have multiple generations of spankers of me. I can't switch the name. And so, of course, how has God ordained it? I go from PJ as a kid and me thinking of this name as a name of immaturity and youth to now where my greatest responsibility, the best thing I do in my life, coming here to worship with you all, is I'm known by my childhood name, and I'm grateful for it. My name's on the website, it's PJ, all these things. And you realize that a name's just that, a name. And yet, with me, there was a meaning and a difference, and if, depending on how I introduced myself to you, you could tell, am I trying to posture, I'm Peter, or am I PJ? And we actually have this going on in our passage when you hear Darius and Cyrus. Maybe you've noticed the difference. Maybe you get concerned. Why are these names and kings getting thrown around? But in chapter 10 of Daniel, 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, we have Cyrus used as a name. It says in the third year of his reign, this is what's going on with Daniel. And yet, in our passage here, we have Darius and in the verse before our passage, in the last verse of Daniel 5, we have Cyrus, or excuse me, Darius the Mede as the one who conquered. Turn me with me, if you would, to 2 Chronicles. Praise God, he ordained for us to have 2 Chronicles as our Sunday school topic for today. But if you turn over to 2 Chronicles and the last um, four verses of the chapter, or excuse me, the last two verses of the chapter, 22 and 23, That's a good point, sorry. Verse 30, uh, chapter 36, meant to say, the last two verses of the entire book of 2 Chronicles. So 2 Chronicles 36, 22 and 23. Think of a creative pause to give people time to catch up for my mistake there. All right, in verse 22 it says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may Yahweh, his God, be with him. Let him go up. So here we have Cyrus, king of Persia, who is going to end the 70 years of exile that Daniel and the Judeans that have been taken in exile to Babylon, um, it's going to come to an end under Cyrus, the king of Persia. And yet, we're told in Daniel 6, it starts with, it pleased Darius. And then at the end, in verse 31 of Daniel 5, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So, God prophesied, and we will see this uh, later, we'll look at a portion where we see God prophesied through Jeremiah and Isaiah that the Medes, so a Median king, would conquer Babylon and bring judgment to Babylon. But he also prophesied that a Persian king would allow them to return. We just saw in 2 Chronicles where it's talking about a Persian king. So if you hear Cyrus, it's him claiming his Persian lineage. If you hear Darius, it's him claiming his Median per, uh, lineage. He was the result of the marriage of two powerful factions. He has both. So if, if you're ever concerned going through Daniel, 
Uh, there's various names popping around. There's a reason for it. Look at it, take a peek as to why would you want to claim Persian victory here or median uh, victory. And they're two different types of victory. We're going to look at those, some of those victories today. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's just look at verse 10. This is where we're spending our time. This is where we see our three traps. So in verse 10 of Daniel 6, we have when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and three times a day, on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. In this verse, we have three traps set. Three traps set. Okay? The first trap is the trap of worship avoidance. He's been given a specific mandate earlier in Jeremiah, and Daniel, we'll see in a moment, knows the words of Jeremiah. He's been given a specific mandate to be a good servant in the kingdom of Babylon. God expressly told the exiles, marry in Babylon, build households and families and work, and work is unto the Lord in Babylon, in exile. Daniel is to be a good servant, and he has been one, even when it's had times where he's had to dictate harsh, difficult things to kings and powerful, vicious men. And yet, even though he has been commanded to obedience, there's this test, this test, this trap for Daniel, where will you avoid worship? You've been given a law, you've been given rules, you've been given instruction, do not pray to anyone else. And we know what Daniel does. We know what Daniel does. So we have on one hand an ext one extreme. We'll see another in a second. But we have one extreme in which, man, there's a pretty good reason to not pray, right? Just to kind of whisper those prayers. To break the routine. To not do his three times a day routine of praying. And yet we see that he doesn't. He doesn't break that in verse 10. He continues to do it. This might seem like a no-brainer. This is what you would expect. Just because the government tells you you shall not worship does not mean you shall not worship, right? It does not mean you shall not worship. But I think the trap is deeper, and we're going to talk about all of this together. And what I want you to question for yourself is, what is a good enough reason to not worship as you worship, as God wants you to worship? The times that you have justified or felt justified to not be here at church, and there are providential reasons, but are you quick to call a challenge, a difficulty, a test, providence? Oh, by God's providence, I couldn't make it to church because I was really tired, right? What, are, what is that, that thing that keeps you from church? And maybe there, there are good reasons. But beyond that, if you pray before dinner, every meal, that one time you don't, why didn't you? What's, why are you breaking the routine? Is it just random? Did you forget? If you do a routine, why did you stop? So it's not that Daniel praying three times a day is prescriptive and you need to now go into a room with an open window face towards Jerusalem and pray three times a day. That's not what this is about. And yet when you deviate from how you worship God, it is saying something. What trap is set in front of you to give you a good reason to do something different? Fear of man? We don't pray. We only pray before meals at home, but we don't pray before meals at the restaurant. We don't, you know, whatever that routine is that you break up, why? Then we have a second trap, which is the other side. So you, you have worship avoidance. You have the other side, which honestly speaks, I, I worry about me more with this, which is, oh, the government's made a wrong law. 
It's a trap of rebellion. I want to go start a revolt. I want to go, go, hey, I'm your top ruler in this kingdom. I'm your top leader. You're about to promote me to number one out of these three different men that were set up among the 120 satraps. Why are you putting a law in place that is explicitly keeping me from doing what I've been called to do? It seems like Daniel would have good reason almost to come before the king and say, okay, do you want the riches that come from me ruling here and me helping lead this province of Babylon and your kingdom? Or do you want to keep me from praying? Pick and choose. And it seems a revolt and a rebellion, that, that might be what comes to mind. But every point along this way, we haven't seen Daniel come in and create an immense fuss over these things. And so we have to be careful that the sins of others do not pull us in to justifiable sin of our own. Okay? Great example, might be weird to think about, Boston Tea Party. If this were to happen today, if one of our congregants were to say, hey, I'm getting taxed too much, let me go take a bunch of government property and throw it in the water, we're not celebrating you. We're coming before you and saying, you need to repent. Just because the sins of others happen does not justify our own sin. And so Daniel, rather than going, well, God, you told me to be a good servant, now they've kept me from worshiping you, which is like a pretty big deal. Check out Exodus 20. It's a pretty big deal. You've told me to not worship him. Now's a chance to go. Let's get the guys. I have a lot of authority and influence in the kingdom. It's time to either stage a coup or to fight, right? Or to cause some revolution. Instead, what does he do? He is faithful and consistent, and he does what he knows he is called to do and leaves it to God. But the third trap, and the trap where we're going to spend the rest of our time, is this trap of having knowledge of certain victory. Daniel knows he will win. Daniel knows this. We have these guys trying out, going out of their way to get him, and yet he knows he's going to win. If you look, already we've read 2 Chronicles, but if you look with me, please turn to Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah is the book right before Daniel. Turn to Jeremiah, or excuse me, uh, two books, Ezekiel. It's before Daniel, but two books. Jeremiah 51, and we're going to look at verse 11. The words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51, verse 11. Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. So at this point, this is the end of what, at least in the ESV, they call that section the utter destruction of Babylon. So a whole bunch of language talking about the destruction of Babylon. Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. Yahweh has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of Yahweh, the vengeance for his temple. So this has already begun. The, the Medes are here. Daniel knows this. The Medes are here. The victory is beginning. Babylon is being conquered. These people who have oppressed them. But flip a little further back into Isaiah. Oh, does the mic still get me? Okay. Um, Isaiah 13. And if you look at 13, we're not going to read a verse out of 13. We're going to look at a verse, two verses in 14. But I want you just to glance for a moment at Isaiah 13. This is Isaiah's accounting of the judgment of Babylon. If you read this passage, you will have questions for your pastors. 
without a doubt. God is declaring judgment on men, women, infants, animals. All of Babylon, from top to bottom, will be judged and laid bare. And what happens after Isaiah declaring the judgment of Babylon? We have in chapter 14, the first two verses. For Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in Yahweh's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. The conquering of Babylon, next in line, the next bullet point in this linear structure that God has prophesied, is the victory for those in exile. And that they, the oppressed will be able to be the captors now, right? The captives will become the captors, and they will get to have victory. And so the trap that I'm putting before you in Daniel 6 that I think is there, that can, is easy to miss, is that Daniel knows the outcome. It is certain, it is sure. He is a man of excellent understanding and wisdom and knowledge. And in knowing this, and knowing the words of Jeremiah, knowing the words of Isaiah, he has all the reason in the world to go, yeah, come at me, bro. Come, come get me. Go ahead. I'm going to go pray. And what I'm going to go pray, I'm going to pray the words of, I'm going to go pray the words of Isaiah. Let me talk to you about judgment and bringing down your judgment. This is a trap. This is, I think, a an area in which it is easy for us in our victory to start to feel this idea and sense that the victory belongs to us. God has secured a victory for us. Yes, it's God's doing, but that means we are greater for having had that victory. And so when we're oppressed, perhaps thoughts, prayers start to drift into this, well, one day you'll see, and it becomes vindictive. It becomes something other than what it should be. And so in Daniel 6, we, I almost wish we could see, well, Daniel, in the midst of this, knowing victory is sure, he's persecuted, knowing the outcome, how does he handle his prayer? What, in this victorious prayer, what, what is his, what's his prayer going to be? How does he handle this? And I can't say that which one of the three prayers a day that they caught him in, or which day into this cycle that he was caught in, and yet, we know how Daniel, in light of the knowledge of victory, prays. So, please turn with me, and where we'll be the rest of the time, I won't ask you to turn anymore, is Daniel 9. Daniel 9. This is, to me, awesome. It feels like there's a hyperlink on Daniel 6, verse 10. We've clicked it. We now go into the rabbit hole of the prayer itself, into the prayers of Daniel. You'll see in verse 1 of Daniel 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made the king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel just expressly said, I know what Jeremiah has said, I know the timeline, and I know that the, the Medes are supposed to come in before the victory timeline, right? That victory fuse is lit. Ooh, time's coming. You're lining up all the stars. You're seeing these things. This is a man who interprets visions. He's putting it together. And in knowing this, right, in knowing, ooh, our time is now, and so 
it's easy to think that the persecution of, of him with this forbiddance uh, of prayer and not being able to pray, it's time for him to pray that victorious prayer. But when he knows there's victory and it is on the doorstep, how does he pray? Look at verse 3 with me. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We'll read more in a moment. Daniel knows he will be victorious, but he also knows it's not his victory. It is not his. The reason they're even in exile in the first place and experiencing what they're experiencing is the direct discipline of the Lord and the consequence of sin. This is the consequence of sin. And Daniel knows it. And so the appropriate response is, ha, we'll be the victors now. No, that's not the appropriate response. Instead, he knows it's to thank his God, to lean on the steadfast holiness of his God, and to confess his sin, knowing he is a part of the nation that has been unfaithful and worshipped other gods. Daniel's the model here. When we know, and we do know, we have Christ, victory is certain, it has been secured. Confession does not stop. In fact, the very securing of that victory causes me to realize even more how unworthy of the victory that is going to be given to me by my Savior. I am not worthy of this. And to you, Lord, I need to come in confession. And although the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah are absolutely true, in which the words of the rest of Scripture that speak to the judgment and destruction of those who do not believe is That is not where I am to spend my time praying for that destruction because we know the Lord's will will be done. Instead, I would rather, reflecting on that, understanding what God has to say, I would rather pray back to God a prayer confession, knowing that only the holiness of God is capable of bringing destruction on a people and proper judgment without sin, that it is holy, righteous judgment. And when I, even when I do my best to try to be a good dad and parent my children, and they have to have discipline, I, too many confessions have had to come out of my discipline of my children, let alone to think about some of these things or to pray some of these words. And so I think Daniel is modeling for us which is, what is a great behavior, which is, Lord, you are going to do your will, which includes judgment and salvation. And the salvation that I'm going to get, I am not worthy of. Let me pray confession. So let's read through the rest of this before we look at the model that is Christ in this type of prayer. But let's read from verse 6. We have, we have not listened to your servants and the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Yahweh, belong open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. 
To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. We have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us all, set up before us by his servants, the prophets. Daniel, to this point, is praying a prayer of confession for not following God's law. Daniel has a clear understanding of the law in the scriptures. He's already said it. This passage started off in Daniel 9 with talking of his knowledge of Jeremiah and the words of Jeremiah. And again, rather than falling into the temptation of, I am justified in my rebellion against the king, instead, because of his knowledge of the law, instead he acknowledges, no, I have failed your law. I have failed your law. I will come and kneel and worship and confess because I have failed your law. The focus is not on the turning of the laws of men or the bringing down of regimes or imposing the correct rulers. That is not what Daniel's focused on in this time. Instead, he's focused on his relationship with his God. It continues on. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God, turning from our insight by your truth. Therefore Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. He has justly brought us calamity. For Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. To this point, Daniel, it's a long prayer, right? This is, this is a long reading, right? I'm, I'm getting kind of an easy way in the sermon, right? I got a lot of verses. But yet, it is clear in his, in his repenting over and over and over, and as a leader repenting for his covenant household, his, his, um, his congregation, his nation, his tribe, the promised people of God, Israel and Judah, that have failed God's law. This prayer of confession is r- r- over and over going to God in confession. If you were to read this and this alone and not realize that this is in the same first year that he is being tested by the satraps, you'd realize this, he has no mind on victory. That is not what his focus is on, is on the victory, or perhaps it might even have some of the victory, but it is not on the destruction and judgment of his accusers and attackers. Instead, it is this worship. And we'll finish his prayer here with, O Lord, according to all your unrighteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of For our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. 
Daniel, in this prayer, knows that the Lord will do his will, and he confesses all the same, and asks that the Lord's will is done. We have this modeled in the greater in the Christ. This is exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. We said it today, it lined up by God's providence, it lined up to be the thing for us to recite today in our, in our time of recitation. We recite the Lord's Prayer. But even before the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, we have in, earlier in Luke, we have Jesus confronted, talking to Pharisees who are saying terrible things against Jesus. And Jesus calls them out and says, whoa, if you're lifting yourself up in pride, if you're lifting yourself up in victory, you should not, Pharisees. In Luke, in, um, Luke 3, 8, he says, I could from these stones call up sons of Abraham. God could call up stones to be sons of Abraham. So do not claim your heritage, your, your uh, pharisaical doings, right? The following of God's law from your perspective. Do not claim that because victory is not yours. It belongs to me. You should be repenting. You should be doing my will. And so he chastises them in what I would imagine, based on the history, culture, and context of the time, is an incredible insult. I could call up these rocks to have as much that you are prideful of. I could make these rocks do that. And then later, so after calling them and saying, instead, you are to walk in the ways of the Lord, and later in Luke 5, he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. That is why Christ came, to call the sinner to repentance. Christ did not come for those who say, I am the sons of Abraham. He came for those who are sinners and unrighteous. And that's all of us, sinners and unrighteous. And then, when you progress now to Matthew 6 and what we know so well, the Lord's Prayer, and he teaches them how to pray, Jesus teaches the response to knowing victory that is certain and how to pray. Jesus knowing that he will have victory and that the, in, after three days the temple will be risen up, he teaches them how to pray. And he says, you will, Lord, your will be done. But he also says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Repentance. You know victory is certain. Lord's will will be done. And yet they are to repent. It's incredible if you think about it. Jesus does not need to pray those words. There's nothing for which, no debt for which Christ needs to be forgiven. And yet he has taught us how to pray in light of certain victory. And so when we think through these three traps, when we think through our daily life, going into a political season where we have people trying to put into written law things that are outright explicit sin or things that might be a barrier to worship. Check yourself. How do you respond? Is it to go find another believer and talk about how terrible this ruler is? Is it to look at headlines, forward them along on Facebook, see, yeah, this is terrible, look what's being done? Or does it drive you to understanding this, these laws, these rulers are fallen men and so was I without Christ. And so to my knees I will go in prayer as I always go steadily, faithfully, confessing my sin. Confessing my sin. That because out of the graciousness of God I will be saved, and yet in this world I have to experience torments and trials, and all I should reflect on is the great glory of God and the pain of my sin. 
Daniel is the model. I have for everyone an ins or a, um, a, a document, a takeaway if you would like. It's gonna be on the table over here, which is I've gone through and taken the prayer of Daniel 9. So it's gonna be verses um, uh, starting halfway through verse four, the actual prayer, what's in quotes, through verse 19. And I've changed just some of the wording to make it a personal prayer. You can read it, you can pray it, a prayer of confession saying your, instead of it'd be first person pronouns, so saying, I have sinned before you, Lord. I, before you, Lord, have sinned and transgressed against your law. So take it, I pray that this week you will, you will pray through it. The victory is certain, it is there. But for us as saints, we can't be like a young child playing basketball saying, well, I am a victorious one. I am in the all-star game. 400 other kids are not. I'm gonna lift myself up. I'm due a better name because I'm one of the called and chosen ones. No. Praise be to God that we were called and chosen and selected to be saints, made right before God by the graciousness and good mercy of our God, and go to him in confession, acknowledge that distance, because the salvation of you is all the greater for that distance, not because of your own doing and your own worthiness. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our works are as filthy rags, Lord. We have nothing worthy in and of ourselves to bring us to a point for which we are worthy of the victory that we know we will get. Lord, we pray that we have a heart of Daniel, that even though we see, we see everything coming together, we see your will being done in the world, it is plain, it is obvious, and you have prophesied through your prophets by your Holy Spirit and testified to the victory that is to come. Lord, we don't want to not rejoice in that victory. And we do not want to take away from your holy judgment because your judgment is holy and for you to judge, Lord. But I pray that first we see where we rightly belong in relation to you, which is you are the creator and we are the created. And yet your son came and was obedient to the cross, died, shed his blood so that we might one day get to worship you for eternity. May you be glorified. In your son's name we pray. Amen.